director of the Green Center for the Family. And I'm so glad you guys are here because it's so beautiful outside and I'm just impressed that you would be here. Oh, thank you. Um, you know, what we want to talk about today, I'm seeing this session right now as a time to learn from each other a lot. Um, you'll notice you don't have a handout uh, because I think I have a lot to learn from you as well as I think I have some things to share with you about what we want to talk about. Um, marriage. Uh, marriage is, you know, that's where I get stuck, right there. I, I think um, the thing in life that I have appreciated the most, that I think makes me feel held and loved and cared for and competent and not alone and all these wonderful things. When someone asks me the question, you know, why is marriage so great? I have a hard time putting that into words. Um, and we do sometimes, you know, sometimes we talk uh, about you know, that marriage is hard or something like that, and marriage does take work. But the benefit of marriage is pretty incredible, and so how do we put that into words? Um, and I just want to start this by just talking about a few of the statistics that are out there right now. If you're not aware of this, just under 50% of the population of the United States is single. That means single again, or single always, but we are growing to the point that we are gonna have more single adults in the United States than married adults, okay? In 2007, there were 14 million couples cohabitating. In 2017, there were 18 million couples cohabitating. It's up 29% in the last 10 years. And I think of most significant, well, of really major significance right now is the number one uh, age group to cohabitate is age 25 to 34. That's the most likely age for people to cohabitate. So as Christians, as church leaders, number one, I would ask you this question, are these statistics surprising to you or does this feel like the congregation you serve? Are these statistics surprising to you? This feels like what's going on in the culture yes. right now. So what are some of the reasons that you all believe this is what's happening in the culture right now? Yeah. When the Bible was taken out of the schools in 1962, things started going downhill right from then. They don't teach morals. They don't teach. They just not they teach uh, logic so some of the teaching has changed in that we don't teach biblical truth on the societal uh, realm as much as we used to. Yeah, what else? Uh, some of the people I work with, it's more of like, uh, we want to do a trial period yeah. before committing. Yeah, and what is this idea about a trial period? Where, why do we think that's growing in popularity? Because they probably went through divorces in their family. So. I think this is a part of the issue, you know. Um, uh, 50% of 
Americans are divorced. Um, interestingly, that statistic is dropping, but do you know why it's dropping? Because people are cohabitating, so we haven't really made any grounds on that. But, you know, this is kind of a, a thing on my generation, I feel like, is that we didn't make marriage very attractive for some reason when um, this millennial generation was growing up. A lot of them suffered divorce. And so when they look at being married, it doesn't look very attractive. So this whole idea of a trial period. What else do you think? Yeah. Expenses. It costs a lot to get married. Perception is, is that it costs a lot to get married. Um, are you talking about like a wedding? Yeah. Yeah, okay, the ceremony itself costs too much. Yeah, that's, that's something. We'll, we'll live together for a while, and when we get enough money, then we'll get married. Well, there's a problem there, right? We all know that. When we live with other people, we still don't have it's money. It's been normalized in our culture, in the media, in the way uh, relationships are depicted. Um, marriage is not a viable option. And so that's what's in our, again, in our media. Yeah, it's in our media. And, and I would say to this idea of singleness, singleness is also kind of um, idolized sometimes in media or movies or TV programs. If we were all single, we'd have this, all this free life to do whatever we wanted to do with. And so we don't need to get married because in actuality, according to the media, it's a whole lot more fun to be single than it is to be married. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people do not want to commit. Yeah. They just don't want to commit, and because commitment takes, you have to stay with it. Mm -hmm. They don't want to. Commitment is a hard thing. I read something not too long ago that, um, and, and I don't want to pick on the millennial generation, Gen Z, younger generation, but that they want connection without commitment. And I thought, that's an interesting concept. I mean, I, I have a hard time even thinking about how I would befriend somebody and walk into a friendship with somebody that said to me, you know, I really want to be close to you, but I'll maybe only be there if you need me. <laughs> I'll maybe be there for you. You know, that there's no commitment even to any friendship relationship that I would have. I. It's a, it's a hard concept for me to grasp, is connection without commitment. But I think the lack of commitment is really a serious issue. There was another hand at the back. So, yeah? It's okay to have sex outside of marriage. It's okay to have sex outside of marriage, and it's so much easier to have sex outside of marriage because there's so many birth control options. So um, there was a day and a time and a place where you didn't want to have sex outside of marriage because you might end up pregnant. That's no longer the case. There's a lot of ways to solve that problem. Yeah. I also think that there's this idea that you, you lose who you are when you get married. And our society is so much in following who you are and being true to yourself and following your heart. It's like there's a disconnect between the two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you said it well. Just the whole idea that life is about me, mm -hmm. and life is about making me happy. Mm -hmm. So um, I don't need somebody else to make me happy, because all I need is me to make me happy. And loneliness and depression are on the rise more than ever. Yeah. Uh, anxiety, anxiety, 
So we've promoted this life is all about me and we're ended up isolated and by ourselves and we're getting depressed and anxious about it. So that's a conundrum. Did you have one? Yeah. Yeah, so I can be committed without a piece of paper. So, you all have hit up, yeah. I had a question, I was wondering, um, in this statistic, just under 50% of the population over the age of 18 is single. Are you finding a lot of people that have been married, say 25, 30, 35 years, have decided, uh, we're done now? Yes, the question is, is there, are there later in life divorces happening a lot? Yes, yeah. Uh, a lot of times there's so many and as a therapist you know and as a therapist on a college campus there's so many parents that believe that okay my kids have gone to college so now I can divorce I heard a story about three weeks ago of a young woman that went home at Thanksgiving to find out that her parents had divorced and they hadn't bothered to tell her so there's this idea that it's not going to affect the kids when they're out of the home and it most definitely is going to affect the kids, but some people are actually waiting for that to happen so they can divorce. So you've hit a lot of the problems well, so here's what I want to ask you to do. I want you to get in groups of three, four, and five, however many, what's natural, and I want you to come up with reasons that you would give someone to get married if they ask you, why should I get married? I'm planning on cohabitating. Why should I get married? And I want you to do this exercise without referring to the Bible at all. Doesn't that sound fun? Okay, so I'm going to give you about six minutes. Get in a group of people, come up with some reasons. So basically someone is always there. Tell someone who wants to live together. I think you're. 
Terry came into my life at six, well, he came into my life at 14, but at 16 we started dating and he told me very early that he loved me and he wanted to marry me. I think it was our third date. <laughs> that was way too much for me. Um, and we spent the next eight years in what we fondly refer to as dating hell. Uh, it was awful. I, I broke up with Terry Hargrave. I can't tell you how many times I broke up with Terry Hargrave. And I typically had really good reasons to break up with Terry. Um, one night we went to a friend's house and um, he ate three hamburgers and I thought that was too many. <laughs> so That's I broke up with him. <laughs> Looking back on it now, um, Terry had asthma when he was younger and he also played football and they would keep an oxygen bin on the field for Terry uh, in case he needed a little oxygen in between plays. That was probably bothering me at some level, but I didn't know that. So part of my fear of commitment that I never really understood at 16, at 17, at 18, at 20, at 22, at 23 was more about my life history than it was about the commitment. And no one ever sat me down and said, you know, Sharon, why are you afraid of dating Terry? Because I would tell you that from the eighth grade on, he was always my best friend. But we'd get too close and I'd get too scared and I'd go away. So I think it's really important with couples that are, are resisting commitment to try to understand the story of what's behind that. Maybe it is a parent's divorce. Maybe it is another trauma that they've experienced. But if no one ever stops to listen to that story and just tells them that they're wrong for living together, we're not going to get very far. Um, can each of you tell me your feelings about marriage versus cohabitation? Is one of you more pro-cohabitation? And just sit back and listen and watch the dynamic and watch how they talk to you and watch how they answer these questions. One of my favorite questions in marital therapy and also in the Relate Strong groups that we do, we ask this question the first night, is we ask couples, what did you learn about marriage in the family you grew up in? It's a really interesting question. A lot of times people have never thought about that. So they may be saying they want to cohabitate because what marriage is only a piece of paper, but they honestly may have this feeling of there's something in my past that I haven't quite dealt with that I didn't want to know. Well, my father, when I was three years old, uh, he was bipolar. They didn't know what bipolar was in 1960. He committed suicide. So what did I learn about marriage in the family I grew up in? My mother never remarried, so I never saw a marriage. But the marriage that I did know about didn't really have a happy ending. So helping people understand and talk through their issues of what they learned, know, and experienced about marriage, I think can be really helpful. Are you currently living together? If so, how did you make the decision to move in together? Now, if you don't have this resource, get your pencil out right now. There is a website by a guy named Scott Stanley. Scott Stanley is on our board at the Boone Center for the Family. And the website is called Sliding Versus Deciding. Now, how sliding versus deciding works is we're getting to know each other, we're dating, uh, 
get a little carried away one night, sleep together. We enjoy that. Two weeks later, we sleep together again. Four weeks later, I'm coming over to your house for dinner, so I bring some extra clothes and my toothbrush. And three nights after that, we decide that, well, let's just spend the weekend together. So I bring my extra clothes, I bring my toothbrush, and I bring over some other things that are significant to me. And then a week after that, I bring more stuff and more stuff. And pretty soon we look at each other and we say, why are we paying rent in two apartments? Because most of my stuff is now in your apartment. And if we got rid of my apartment, we'd have more money. A lot of couples that cohabitate, when you ask them the question, how did you decide to live together, will tell you they never decided. They slid into it. So that's sliding versus deciding. And um, Scott, uh, he is a Christian. He's at the University of Denver. Um, he's about my age. Uh, he has a co-researcher who's female, who's 30, who's not a Christian. And he really likes that arrangement in his research because it balances out any biased findings. And there's all sorts of interesting uh, research on that website. But it's really insightful to a couple, if they are already living together, to ask them the question, when did you decide to move in together? And often you will say, well, we never really did. That's a pretty big decision to happen in your life without ever having a conversation about it, right? So tip one, and I'm calling this the ambiguity of cohabitation. Are we committed or are we not? Um, without a ritual like a wedding or a defined step, it's hard to know the state of the relationship. And again, this is some of Stanley's research. Research shows in 35% of all cohabitating relationships, there is an asymmetrical commitment. One person is more committed than the other. I'm surprised, honestly, that statistic isn't higher. Uh, I, I would have expected it to be a little higher. But you have this situation where maybe a couple doesn't want to get married, but okay, I don't want to marry you, but I'll live with you. So there's a higher level of commitment for one couple than for the other one. Statistically, another interesting thing about cohabitation is, is that typically females see cohabitation as a step towards marriage. Males see cohabitation as a step to keep me from getting married. Now, if I had a young couple sitting in front of me um, and I was going to tell them about that statistic, I would just drop it in as a fact. I wouldn't make a big deal about it. But that young woman sitting there in that chair is going to hear what I say when I say, you know, yeah, how'd y'all decide to live together? Typically there's asymmetricals. One of you more committed than the other. Oh, by the way, interesting statistic is, you know, females see it as a step towards marriage. Number one, the guy's going to be going, whoa, <laughs> I didn't see this as a step towards marriage. Yeah. And the woman's going to be, when I say, and males see it as a step away from marriage, she's going to be start to think, what, you know, what am I really doing in this relationship? 
This is another one I really like to think about is, has the couple actually sat down and had a conversation about what are the good reasons to split up? So, if one of us gets really, I mean, and, and again, if I'm talking to them, I said, have y'all talked about that? I mean, what would be a good reason um, for you, for us to go our, our separate ways? If one of us gets chronically ill, or I would say to them, if one of you gets chronically ill, is that a reason to separate? Um, what if one of you makes a whole lot more money than the other one? Is that a really good reason to separate? Or, you know, um, what if one of you starts to feel attracted to another person? Would that be a good reason to separate? Because, you know, they haven't thought about the separation they're not, they're not married because they don't want the commitment, but they haven't really thought through what might end this relationship. And again, the calmer we can stay in this conversation that we're having with them to say, okay, you know, what would it be that would be a good reason to, tell me, tell me some reasons that would be good to break up. Well, just when we decide we don't like each other anymore. You know, well, what about these other things? What about a chronic illness? Would that be a reason to separate um, and to go your separate ways and to help them begin to think through the decision? Because as we talked about, most people haven't made a decision. They've just kind of slid there. And so help them decide that. Terry talked a little bit about this uh, in the last session, this whole idea of trust. And trust is such an interesting characteristic. We talk a lot about love, and I think Terry even said, he says often, I love love. But we talk about loving another person, but we don't talk much about trusting another person. Now, I, I would take, a, take you, on a, you know, to a different example. Many of you know people that are in a destructive, maybe abusive relationship, right? And they may look at you and say, I can't leave it because I love them so much. And sometimes in that moment, it's good to look at them and say, I understand that you love them. Instead of saying, how can you love them? Say, I understand that you love them, but do you feel like you can trust them? Is a totally different question. And being able to define trust and define what trust means to these young couples that are thinking, can I trust this person that I'm thinking about cohabitating with? Really important, so predictability. Uh, I love the example Terry gave of, you know, would you buy a house from somebody that only completed buying the house, um, building the house 50% of the time? We have to be able to lean into people that we trust, they have to be predictable. So if we think about predictability, how do I build trust in someone with predictability when I'm not sure they're going to be there when I wake up tomorrow morning? What does that trust look like? Um, I, need, I need a couple, I need some brave extroverted people to do a role play for me on this next one. So, And it doesn't have to be a couple. It can be a, a woman, a random woman, and a random who wants to volunteer to be a random woman or not? <laughs> but trust requires openness. So this idea 
that we're going to be really honest with each other in this relationship of cohabitation. So what that would require is that I would begin to be open with you when I start feeling attracted to other people. Now let me also say this is a good marital principle. We get attracted to other people. It is a positive thing in marriage if you're feeling yourself being attracted to other people to be able to report that to your spouse so y'all can work on building what's in your relationship, what can strengthen your relationship at that time. But do I have a, do I have a, a couple of volunteers? Oh, good, I knew it. Okay, do I have a female back here? Okay, great. So if y'all would just come up here. You'll be a female. Okay, so let's get two chairs here. A really successful woman. You just got this, Congratulations. this um, promotion at your job, and you're really excited about it. And it's going to involve a lot of travel, and you might even get to live in Paris. And we're just so excited about that. And in thinking about Paris, um, there's somebody that you know uh, that is also at your place of employment that's um, thinking about moving to Paris and you're finding yourself attracted to that person, okay? So um, you have been the stable person in the, part in the partnership. You've put her through school. You've paid for all the rent and all the groceries while her money's gone towards paying for her tuition while you all have been living together. Okay, so I want you all to role play just help me see what it would be like, because you know that you've had this agreement that you're gonna tell him when you start feeling attracted to other people, and you desperately don't wanna leave this relationship. What would this conversation look like? Wow. Sorry, Nancy, wasn't Well, she's gotta tell you first. <laughs> she's thinking about so I'm gonna tell him you're thinking about leaving. So, yeah. I'm thinking about leaving him? Yes. Okay, I'm thinking about leaving you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, honey, how are you? I'm out of here. Yes, now, yeah, okay, I probably have a couple of actually do this, and I'm saying, is that really how you would tell him? No, that's not okay. <laughs> okay, okay, so, so you, you're finding yourself attracted to this other guy that's going to Paris, You've got this new job promotion. How are you going to tell him? So, so guess what? <laughs> I have had this opportunity to take a job in Paris, and it would be really good for my career, and I really think it would be important for me to take it. So what does that do about it? Well, that's something we can kind of sit on the back burner and discuss. I don't know if Paris is a back burner. <laughs> here and then we have this life here. Okay, now you're you've committed to him that you're going to tell him that you're attracted to other people. I'm going to actually follow through with that commitment. You're gonna, are you going to follow through? Because what is she doing? 
Yeah. Yeah. She's, she's, wanting to, she's wanting to blame it all on Paris, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so. A lot of people do. <laughs> She's like, I am out of here. So if you can set them up to help them talk about how would you want to tell each other that? Because if you're going to have a trustworthy relationship, you're going to have to be open with one another. And you're going to have to start talking about the relationship when and if you see it getting ready to end. Do you want to say something? How, how many couples have an agreement that they will tell their partner when they start feeling attracted to somebody else. I would think that the percentage is like... Right, and that's why I'm teaching them about trust and telling them that openness is an important part of relationship. So I'm going to teach them that. And then I'm going to say, if you're going to cohabitate, what are the reasons you would leave if one of those is you're attracted to somebody else? The human kind thing to do is to start telling your partner when you're attracted to somebody else. So, um, and then the whole idea that Terry talked to about trust requires this balance of give and take. Now, this happens a lot in cohabitation. Because if somebody owns a home and somebody owns an apartment, where are you going to move? The house. Right. If somebody has nice furniture and somebody has kind of cruddy furniture, whose furniture are you going to use? And on and on and on. Which this can feel really exciting when you're moving in together. <coughs> until, you know, for any of you that were here with uh, Melissa Simonton that talked about sexual relationships, how the dopamine doesn't always work like it does when you're meeting people and getting in. And so you've been living with this person for nine months now, and they put their feet on your white couch all the time. The balance of give and take is going to begin to feel counterbalanced. So what we want to do is we would want to help couples that are moving in together begin to understand that as they move in together, they want to be balanced in the decisions that they're, that they're, um, that they're going to make. Um, questions like whose name is going to be on the lease? What part of the furniture are we going to keep? Uh, what part of yours? Okay, moving on. Family planning, now or later. 
Is family planning a part of cohabitation? Yes, it is. Let me tell you why. Living together to test relationships, especially during the 25 to 34 year old time period, um, can delay having children and delay parenting. And then you can get into potential infertility issues. If you haven't read the book, The Defining Decade, get it, buy it, read it. Andy Benton told me to read it about three years ago. And what this book talks about, um, Meg Jay writes in this book, that this idea that our 20-somethings can have gap years and go travel in Europe and work at Starbucks and date a lot of people, it's ending up as these people are entering into their 30s, that that didn't work out so well. Because they didn't get a job that helped them get a better job that they want by the time that they're 31 or 32. And now, those five years at Starbucks aren't so helpful. They also might have passed up a lot of really good potential partners, thinking, ah, I really like this guy, but you know what, there may be somebody better. And then 30 hits, and I'm female, and my biological clock is ticking, and I'm gonna wish maybe I had married those guys that I really liked, that I moved on from. Um, so this whole idea of, of well, I, I'll live with them for two or three years and see if I like them can actually end up causing a lot of problems when you get into your 30s um, with infertility. Um, then dis determining the desire to live with biological children is important before having children in cohabitating relationships. I don't think people are thinking that far into the future. So the question is, do you want to live with your biological children? Uh, that I think it's good to ask a couple that's starting to cohabitate together and they say, well, yes, I want to live with my biological children. Well, if both of you want to live with your biological children, there's only one solution to that, right? That's both of you living together. Uh, when you start thinking about, as a, as a woman, do I want some other woman putting my son to bed? when he's 12, 13, or 14. It takes on a whole new realm. Uh, the other interesting statistic is um, children perform better if they live with their biological father. This is a new study. Of course, they also look better, work better if they live with their um, biological mother. But they're now finding that the biological father is very important in the life of children and stepfathers do not make a difference in the success of children from this study. Now, if you're a stepfather in the room, I'm not saying to you specifically, you're not making a difference in your stepchildren's life. I'm just saying, if we're, he if we're helping people think about whether or not they want to cohabitate, do you want to live with your biological children is a really important question. Uh, this statistic is two-thirds of cohabitating parents split before their children are 12, compared with one-fourth of the married partners that split before children are 12. So you cannot move in together. If you're thinking about your life, if you're thinking about your goals, if you're thinking about your dreams, you can't move in together and not have a conversation about family planning. Uh, because it's absolutely critical and crucial. 
And what happens is when you move in together, you can accidentally get pregnant, and then you have to deal with the issue of what are we going to do with this child. Or one of you may start wanting to have children, and the other one may not, and you can actually <coughs> slide into having children, just like you can slide into living with each other. So um, it's, it's the whole idea of we have to be responsible in what we want our future families to look like, even though we're cohabitating now. Breaking up is hard to do. I could burst into song, but I won't. <laughs> the entanglements of cohabitation. People, for some reason, believe it's easier to get away from each other if you just cohabitate than if you're married. Truth is, it's just as difficult to get away from each other when you cohabitate as when you're married. For instance, the examples I gave already earlier. Whose name is on the lease? <coughs> Whose furniture do you have? Uh, what, are, what are all the things you have to divide up if you're a couple? Dishes, pots and pans, what else? Children. Children. Pets. Pets. We live in a neighborhood where two women have um, visitation right with their dogs. Because people get a dog together when they move in together, and then they split up and they both love the dog. So they work out visitation with their dogs. So it's really important to think about the fact that just because I'm cohabitating with you and not married to you doesn't make the division of property any easier. Now, in California, there's 16 states that are community property states. If we have commingled our belongings, even if we're not married, if we've commingled our belongings, who do those belongings belong to? Both of you. So, if I move into a house that the guy I'm going to live with owns, and I live there with him for four years, if I challenge that legally, I could actually own half his house. Have you thought about that? You know? It's, it's one of those things that I think people don't honestly think about. And breaking up is ugly. I'm a marriage and family therapist, and I have worked with so many couples going through a divorce or going through a breakup that say, well, we're going to be nice to each other. But boy, it gets down to it, and people are wicked. So if you live in a community property state, that's something to consider. I think, in a lot of ways, that breaking up is more complicated than divorce. Because if I'm, if I'm married, I'm going to probably go get a divorce lawyer or a mediator or somebody like that that's going to walk us through the process. And if I decide that I'm um, going to just break up with you, I'm probably not going to think about it as much. And again, this is a problem that a lot of people run into um, in cohabitating relationships. Let's say you find out your cohabitating partner is seeing somebody else. So you get mad, so you move out. And three weeks later, you realize all the stuff 
that you left behind in the cohabitating relationship. A lot of times when we get out of a relationship in a hurry, we don't really think about the financial ramifications or the emotional ramifications that we used to live in this part of town that we like, and now I have to go get an apartment in this other part of town that I don't like. I was 15 minutes from my office, now I'm 45 minutes from my office. So I, I would make a case uh, to a couple sitting in front of me that uh, uh, breaking up from cohabitating may be more difficult than breaking up when you're married. So uh, there's this recent um, study in uh, Harvard study. Let me get the, the numbers on it here. Um, the Harvard study of adult development tracked 268 graduates beginning in 1938 during the Great Depression. And they followed them all these years. Uh, they are still following a few of them. And then they actually started following some of their children. Um, and so, this study, this longitudinal study, um, Robert Waldinger is the man's name, but you can you can pull it up on the TED Talk. What was that name again? Waldinger, it's W-A-L-D-I-N-G-E-R, Robert. It's a great TED Talk that he does on satisfaction in life. And um, he talks about the fact that the number one predictor of lifetime happiness is closeness in relationship and maintenance of relationship. Studies on marriage over the years continue to show that people that are married are healthier, they live longer, their um, life satisfaction is higher. Um, uh, one study um, actually talked about pain levels and pain levels as people get older and chronically ill people, pain levels are reduced in married people <coughs> as opposed to people that live together. So those are some of um, my ideas of um, the five tips for ways to talk to people that are thinking about cohabitating. What are some of the ideas that you guys came up with that maybe I didn't address in um, these? Or what are some of the questions that you might have? I love the fact when y'all were doing group work, there were almost every group had somebody that had a pencil that was writing down the, the, the issues. So you've got them written down. Let's, let's hear what those are. Things that you didn't cover, is that what you're asking for? Yeah, are there some other ideas? Are there questions about some of the things that I covered or are there other ideas that I didn't? address because you all have these conversations all the time I know that uh, one of our yeah. thoughts were the concept that if you cohabitate you may have children yeah what are your grandchildren going to think about yeah that mm -hmm. longevity down the road this doesn't just this is not just a decision about you and the here or now you know what do you want to teach do you want your children to have multiple Romantic relationships and your grandchildren get multiple romantic relationships. Yeah. Uh, one that a theme that came up in a lot of our suggestions in our group was uh, stability and security. That if you have if you're cohabitating, it's two people in a relationship, whereas if you're married, it's one relationship. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just the stability of knowing that I don't have to think about you know if Terry and I go to an event and I see that I look over there and I see him and he's talking to other women, I don't have to think, 
wow, uh, she's really beautiful. Um, she really seems to like him. Uh, you know, I'll tell this story. Uh, years and years ago, um, Terry had an employee that I kept saying, I'm a little concerned. She just seems a little overly friendly to you. And, oh, no, there's nothing there. I don't know. And then um, he was at a conference one day, and uh, a friend of mine was at the conference, and I saw her the next week. We went out to lunch. She said, by the way, there was some blonde woman that was pawing all over your husband at the conference. And I was like, I know exactly who you're talking about. I know who it is. But a lot of times, you know, you, the person themselves doesn't realize they're being hit on, where you, your radar might tell you that they're being hit on. So I, if in this situation, I can, if I'm married to Terry, I can go to him and I can say, you know, please kind of keep your distance from her. I don't think that's a very healthy relationship. If, I'm co if we're cohabitating, I don't really have the assurance that that relationship won't turn into anything else. So yeah, stability and security are really strong in marriage, I, I thought a lot about the vows in sickness and in health, you know. That's a pretty big commitment and pretty stable. It's great if Terry gets sick and I can leave the marriage, it's, or the relationship, you know, some people might think, but not so good if I get sick and he leaves me. There's a real imbalance there. So the stability of knowing that we're with each other through thick and thin, yeah. Anybody else have another idea? Um, have there been any studies about sort of level of investment? I know that sounds kind of like maybe an amorphous concept, but but um, um, you know, two individuals that live primarily for themselves in a relationship versus people who are committed to forging something together and are willing to invest more in that. Yeah, I mean, I would call that that asymmetrical commitment okay. study that uh, Scott Stanley has on his website, um, okay. the sliding versus deciding. I think there's a lot of work there on the differences of commitment to a relationship. You know, you may, there's some people that say, I'm living with somebody because I don't ever want to get married. Mm -hmm. well, good to know. Yeah. <laughs> so. What else? What other ideas did you guys, come on, you guys came up with some other ideas, right? Yeah. I just think it's, when I would ask people, wouldn't you want to know that somebody's committed to you and will, is willing to share that with everybody? You know, like this commitment of marriage, this like proclamation to the world, like this is, I choose this one mm -hmm. versus all of these others. Just that confidence to know that your partner chooses you, uh, forsakes all others. You know, we use that line when you do, do marriages. Just to walk around having that confidence is kind of reassuring. And you say you ask that to people? I just, I would. Or yeah. like, yeah. wouldn't you want that more than just like we share a room? Yeah, and I, I would. And, and <laughs> then know, but sometimes I think you're embarrassed to even say like, yeah, we live together. Oh, cool, are you guys married? And then nobody's like, yeah. no, no we just, yeah. <laughs> no, thank God. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's, not a, it's not a thing, but it was a, I have a question. In our choosing what we would say, you specified that we couldn't turn to the Bible. Right, and I did that because I know all you guys know the Bible, so. But yeah. my question is, when you have someone who comes to you within the framework of the church, yeah. 
and they're looking, why? You know, not just tell me the scriptures that, you know, Adam and Eve were one, and so that's why I've got to get married. You know, how do you use the Bible in that without just spitting out scriptures? Because there really isn't a scripture that says, you must get up, you must get married, you must have kids. It's, mm -hmm. it's an amalgamation of different scriptures that are applied. So what would you tell a person who's saying, why does God want me to get married? Uh, does some theologian in the room want to answer that question? Why does God want me to get married? Yeah. First Corinthians 7 actually spends a lot of time talking about the different possibilities. And he says, if you don't need to be married, you're actually better off. Okay? If you don't have sexual needs. But he starts the chapter by saying, if you're going to be sexual, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. And that was before birth control and everything else. But we still have sexually transmitted diseases. We still have all kinds of other things. But he explores a bunch of possibilities there. And he says, it's better not to marry because then you can just be single-mindedly focused on the Lord. And I would look that person square in the eye and say, so is that your reason? It's too much of a distraction. You know, is that really what's going on here? Or it is, are you guys closer to the other end where you're burning with passion and that's why you want to live together? Otherwise, you can be good buddies. You know, there are all kinds of reasons to be good friends. But I get the, the, the sneaking suspicion that there are some reasons that uh, being married is a good option. And he talks about uh, committing your bodies to each other and, you know, all the other passages that talk about relationship. But I'd go to 1 Corinthians 7 and say, yeah, w which end are, of the spectrum are you? Yeah, and of course Genesis, you know, the calls. Um, yeah. But um, I, I do, and we're going to have to close, but I, I'm going to close with this story because this is my, my thought on scripture. Uh, the Ben Center for the Family, um, our major fundraiser every year, is a fashion show called Savvy Chic. That was really interesting when I came and applied for this job to help create healthy families that once a year I would be going to Beverly Hills to a fashion show. But it's, it's a great event. Two years ago, three years ago, we honored, we honor family every year. And two years ago, or three years ago, we honored Ben and Sandy Scully. Now, Ben Scully, for those of you that aren't Californians, has been the voice of Dodger baseball for 67 years. Can you imagine having the same job for 67 years? Anyway, uh, Sandy and Ben did a lot of interviews. He's a, he's a, he's a LA favorite. I mean, people love Ben Scully, and it was such an honor for us to be able to honor them. Um, she actually was married before her marriage to Ben. She brought four children into the relationship that he loved, and they were married for many, many years. Um, and they were doing an interview on the TV about his career and everything like that, and their marriage and their life together. And the camera was um, this way on Sandy's face, and uh, somebody asked him, said, well, what is your secret to your happiness? They're two just really joyful people, too. They're just happy people. And she said, what is, what is your uh, story of, of happiness? Um, where, where does that come from in your marriage and your family? You just sound like you have such a good time. And Sandy actually, from the interviewer, turned and looked at the camera. And she said, 
Well, I've kept the Ten Commandments. So simple. And I thought, you know, I haven't read the Ten Commandments for a while. So I pulled out my Old Testament and I whipped over to the Ten Commandments and I'm going, huh, there's some pretty good ideas here. <laughs> you know, don't covet, don't kill people, you know, honor your father and your mother, love the Lord, keep a Sabbath. I need to do that more. You know, and I read the Ten Commandments and it, it just re-reminded me that God tells us things because they're good for us. He doesn't tell us things to make us miserable. And marrying Terry Hargrave was the best decision I ever made. And I do not know how to communicate that to somebody that is getting ready to cohabitate. But he has loved me when I was wonderful and he has loved me when I am not so wonderful. He has walked with me through joy. He has walked with me through pain. He has been at my side. He listens to me. He cares for me. He knows how to fix my coffee like I like it. <laughs> Do you know how amazing it is to come home to somebody who knows how you like your coffee? A few years ago, well, this was over 10 years ago, we were in Amarillo, still living in Amarillo, and I was sitting at an intersection, <coughs> waiting to cross the intersection, and I glanced over across at the intersection, and I saw Terry's car. I was like, there he is! <laughs> and I thought, I've been married 30 years, and just seeing his car <laughs> makes me feel really, really happy inside, and waving at him. Now, Marriages go through tough times. Our marriage hasn't felt like that every day of our marriage. But if I could communicate in any way, shape, or form to people who are thinking about cohabitating what they're missing when they don't commit in marriage, it would be a wonderful thing. So let me close our week in prayer right now. Thanks, you guys, for being here. Let me close this in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the gift of marriage. We're so thankful that it is your representation on this earth of your love for the church. We are so thankful that being married to somebody makes us better. We are so thankful that being married to someone gives us a companion to walk through life with, to raise children, to navigate jobs, to have vacation, to have fun, to lead other people. So, Father, I just pray for these people in this room today as they've been here and they've come here because they have a passion to tell other people about marriage, too. And I pray that you give them wisdom. I pray that you give them ears to hear. And we just thank you for all you've done for us in this week. And it's in your son's name.